Scripture reading this morning is from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 16, and chapter 3, verses 18 to 23. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it, for if they had, they would not have sacrificed the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, who, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, these things God has prepared for those who loved him. For God has revealed them to us by his Spirit. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except that person's own spirit within? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person who the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not, the, is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may be made wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world or, the world or life or death or the present, or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. You know, one of the things I appreciate about pastoring is the uh, hearing messages from you when something in our services has been meaningful to you. And uh, I appreciate hearing how messages have encouraged you in your faith and how maybe they prompted you to delve deeper into questions that you've been asking. And so keep them coming, whether it's on the chat or, or through an email directly to me. I love to hear from them, hear from you. Now, last week I heard from one mother who said that her school-age child had mentioned to her as, she was, as, they, as they were watching the, the ser service together how he loves to hear me tell stories. So James, this one's for you. You know, this summer, uh, our family signed up for the CSA that gets distributed outside, uh, out of the church building here. And uh, we signed up for the fruit share, which meant every week we would get fruits. Uh, we didn't know when we signed up that we would get watermelons six weeks in a row. And so we've had a lot of watermelons. And I've moved, I think, from becoming a watermelon novice to becoming a watermelon expert. And so I'm here to share that wisdom with you. Uh, maybe it's something you already know. 
So if you're like me and you have a, a watermelon, typically I would cut it like this, straight down the middle. And then you cut it down again in the middle. And then you start cutting across so you have these nice little triangles, right? Now, this is, works great when you're at a picnic or in your backyard because you can share it with people and they can eat it and drip the juice all over your grass. It doesn't work very well when you're in your house or in a church building and you're spilling juice. And also what happens, what do you do with this when you have to put it in your fridge? Because it's like an exploded watermelon. So I thought, this has got to be a better way to do this. There's got to be a better, wiser way of doing this. So I hopped on YouTube like everyone does now, right? And I learned, well, this is what you do. You chop off the top half, you chop off the bottom half, and you got a nice stable thing now. And then you start shaving around the sides. And then, you just start working at that. So you have all these things, and then all you do is go bam, bam, bam. And then you just cube it, and you've got all this great and easy access watermelon that looks wonderful in a bowl. I should have grabbed some tissues before I came up here, but that's okay. <laughs> Hopefully, you came, you came to church today to learn about God, and maybe so far you've learned about a watermelon that God has made and become a little more wiser because of that. Thanks so much. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this we live in a culture of sharing information, where sharing information uh, helps us be wiser in, in the things that we do in life. And it makes life better for us. It makes better sense of the world. Okay, good, thanks. You can see it positively online with these life hacks videos, right, that teach you how to do, be do things better. Or sometimes you see it negatively when you uh, look and, and find these conspiracy theory videos that tell you the real truth behind the moon landing or the real truth of the mystery behind 9-11 or the real truth and the mystery behind the COVID pandemic and 5G network uh, cell phone towers. It feels good to hear a mystery solved, possibly, or wisdom that helps you make better sense of the world. And that was happening in the Corinthian church as well, except their pursuit of wisdom was causing chaos in the church. Last week, we launched into this new sermon series on 1 Corinthians called The United Gifts of the Spirit, In God We Trust. And, and we looked at how uh, Paul wrote to them to move towards unity in the gospel uh, in chapter 1. And today we're going to look at chapters 2 and 3 and find how our, our desires and our questions uh, through, are answered through the mystery and the wisdom of God. We find in this text that God has given us help, not only uh, that in ways that unite us across our divisions, but lead us into deeper relationship with God and also with the, one in, with the world around us. So today we're going to look at that in three steps. First is this idea of wisdom and mystery. What was Paul talking about? The second is the Spirit's work in wisdom and mystery. And the third is Spirit-filled wisdom. What does it look like for us to live with Spirit-filled wisdom? So wisdom and mystery, the Spirit's work in it, and Spirit-filled wisdom. Now, as we jump into these initial chapters of Corinthians, 
you may notice the frequency of a word that's highlighted in this image that you'll see in yellow. It's kind of small, I think, on your screen, but that's like 1 Corinthians 1.18 to the middle of chapter 2. I've highlighted all the words wisdom and wise for you there in yellow. Paul uses the noun wisdom or wise 26 times in the first three chapters of 1 Corinthians. And that's more than half of all the times that he uses those words in all of his writings. And he's written a lot, more than half of the New Testament. Paul is clearly trying to get a message across to the Corinthians. Now, one commentator makes the case that, um, that Paul, like wisdom and maturity and spirituality, were all Corinthian catchwords. They were measures of their maturity. Paul's goal in these opening chapters is to help them understand what true wisdom is in light of the nature of God. Now, when we think of wisdom, we often think of wisdom as making the ability to make good decisions. One great definition I heard a friend teach uh, some children in a church I served at was this, saying wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. Wisdom is doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. I thought that's a pretty good definition of wisdom that we can all benefit from, right? But for the Corinthian church, wisdom had a slightly more focused application because of their cultural context. Now, there was a sense of spiritual elitism in the Corinthian church that was associated with particular spiritual practices and knowledge. Some thought themselves to be wiser than others because of the kind of practices that they engaged in. The influence of pagan religions and their pursuit along with the uh, Greek, uh, their, their, their influence of the pagan uh, religions and their practices along with this Greek pursuit of wisdom and knowledge made for a breeding ground of comparison in their religious experience and their practice. And so this is what Paul is addressing in verses 6 and 7 when he connects the idea of wisdom and mystery in light of God and the gospel. If you read that verse, it says, verse 6 and 7, it says, We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for your glory before time began. Wisdom, mystery, and knowing. In Corinth, people longed to experience the divine through their bodies and through their emotions in addition to their minds. And their wisdom, the wisdom of their age, was to find the religious practices that helped them feel this divine connection, whether it was through sex practices in the worship of Aphrodite, the goddess of fertility and sex, or it was through felt through ecstatic dancing to loud cymbals and strong rhythms in worship to Dionysius, the god of wine. Or maybe it was speaking in tongues associated with the worship of Apollos, the god of war. These mystery religions lacked any emphasis on belief and doctrine. They just emphasized this mystical experience that left them feeling good that they had connected with their god or appeased their god in some way. The ideas of salvation and redemption and life after death characterized by the Jewish faith were secondary or not even on the radar to the immediate experience of this mystery of connecting with God. In addition, these religious practices were not public. 
they were reserved only for those who were initiated into those worship uh, religions. Mystery and secret practices were only for the spiritual elite, for the mature, those who had the wisdom to do those things. And this kind of approach was creeping in to the Corinthian church. But here's the thing. Those mysterious practices aren't the real mystery. See, the mystery of all ages that humans are longing to solve is a connection with the divine, a true connection with the divine. But the wisdom to solve this mystery of connecting with God does not lie in a new ecstatic experience that lies somewhere just ahead of us for us to discover or is reserved exclusively for the mature or the initiated to experience. See, wisdom is not to discover. the ne- It's not on the horizon. God's wisdom, we find, is grounded instead on a historical event that God had planned since the beginning of time, we're told in verse 7, since before the creation of all things, God had planned for Jesus, God's son Jesus to come and live the full human experience, except without sin, go to die on the cross, and rise from the grave. So that the mystery of divine connection between humanity and the divine could be solved. Can you think of anything more wiser than that? That's the kind of God and the wisdom that comes from God. We live in a world that is deeply anti-religious in terms of its form and structures, but deeply spiritual. Now, we may not have a wide selection of household gods in our homes like Apollos or Dionysius or uh, Aphrodite to choose from. Instead, now, we can choose from authors or YouTubers and TED Talks content experts that offer the latest wisdom on how to have a have, have good mental health or how to live a happy life or how to live a life of purpose and of influence. You know, instead of inviting people to a temple and initiate them into a new religious experience, we invite them to watch a YouTube link on social media with attractive titles like, why is it so hard to live in the present? Or overcoming your fears. Or something like, my philosophy for a happy life. Or the art of letting go. Those are just things I found on YouTube really quickly. In 20 minutes or less, you you are given an experience watching that of a well-crafted story that tickles our souls. And we walk away feeling good about learning something new. We think we're wiser for it for about 30 seconds until we scroll down and watch the cat videos. The wisdom of our day is to find the right teaching that leads to an experience that makes us, make, gives us a better sense of our world and of our purpose. That's divine connection language, but minus the divine. And the mystery we find in that, in that process is just ahead of us to be solved. But God's wisdom is different. Where God, human wisdom seeks new teaching and new experience, God's wisdom doesn't come to us because we're smarter or wiser or have connected the right person to point us in the right direction and we read the right books and listen to the right teachers. The way we experience God, the way the mystery of divine connection between God and humans is opened up to us by responding to God's action in the past through God's Son, Jesus. See, God's wisdom unlocks the mystery of the ages through the work of God's Spirit. All we can do is to receive God's wisdom, which seems like foolishness to the world. 
Paul makes this connection between mystery and the spirit in verses 9 and 10. Where he says, however, it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. These are the things that God has revealed to us by his spirit. Now, this is the spirit's work as it relates to God's wisdom. If you continue on through the rest of chapter 2 and 3 and, and highlight the repeated words in this section, you'll notice Paul transitions from focusing on wisdom to focusing on the spirit. I put a, another small image there and it's highlighted in purple. Those are all references to God's spirit. The focus shifts from wisdom to spirit here. Paul describes the work of the spirit to, in verse 13, what he says, explain the spiritual realities with spirit-taught words, as Daryl helped us read earlier for us. Paul then contrasts two kinds of people in this section. The, the, the pneumatikos, that's the person who has the spirit in the NIV or the spiritual one in other translations, the pneumatikos, and, and you contrast that with the sukokos, suke, like that, you know, is the root word for psychology or soul, the person, and that's translated the person without the spirit or the worldly ones in different translations. So you've got pneumatikos, people of the spirit, and sukokos, people without the spirit. In the New Testament, the mystery, word mystery refers to things of God that could not be known to man except through revelation from God. Now, in pagan mystery religions of Corinth that we mentioned earlier, only those initiated into such mystery religions claimed to have contact with the spirit world through emotional excitement, through revelations that they wouldn't have known, through the working of miracles and through speaking in unknown words. But in the New Testament, church, every Christian is initiated. Every follower of Christ has the abiding presence of God's spirit permanently because in God's wisdom, connection with the divine does not depend on us or our discovery of spiritual practices, but on the historical truth of Christ crucified and resurrected. Some of you may be listening so far and you're thinking, hey, Andrew, and you're thinking ahead. It's like, so Andrew, where are you going with this? It sounds like you're anti-experience or anti-spiritual practice. Are you saying we can't experience God in mystical ways? That's not what I'm saying. For those who are left-brained, you might be uh, left-brain oriented, you might say, see, that's exactly why we should be suspect of any touchy-feely practices of emotional music, charismatic expressions of worship, or contemplative practices that lead us into this mystery of enjoying God's presence. It doesn't declare the truth of the gospel sufficiently. And maybe you're on the other side, you're more right-brained in orientation. You say, yeah, that's exactly why Bible-thumping Christianity is missing out on the mystical experience of God because you can't put God in a box. Well, I say both are right and both are wrong. And we're going to unpack those questions in further detail later in the series as we get to those chapters in 1 Corinthians. But for now, I'll say this. Experiential practices that help us enjoy the mystery of God's presence must be three things. One, grounded in. Two, flow out of. And three, lead us back towards joy 
and delight in the historical reality of Christ crucified and resurrected. Say that again. Whatever mystical or mysterious spiritual practice we might enjoy, if it, it must lead us, it must be grounded in, it must flow out of and lead us back to Christ. Crucified and resurrected. That's the key mystery that has been revealed to us by God since the beginning of time. Planned since the beginning of time. If we seek the mysterious presence of God and don't get back to the delight and gratitude of this good news of what God has done for us in Christ, then we missed the greatest mystery solved for us. It's God's wisdom and God's wisdom alone, not our wisdom that leads us to connect with God. It's the gift of God's spirit to us that enables us to recognize, to respond, and to live into this life with God. And that's why it's good news. It doesn't depend on us. We just respond to the invitation of God's spirit. Those promptings, those questionings, those longings, and we come and say, God, you've done this in Christ. You've made it possible, so help me to live it out in response. You see, the Spirit initially works to help us respond to what Christ has done on the cross. The Spirit works to make, it, make that truth alive to us so that we can say, yeah, I believe that, and I'm going to respond to that truth and say, I put my life in your hands, Jesus. You are the leader in my life because of what you've done. I take no more claim on my life. So here is my life. I want to follow you. That's the Holy Spirit's work at the beginning. Because you wouldn't choose to do that if the Holy Spirit didn't work. But it doesn't stop there. Because the Holy the God, Spirit of God now lives in us, the Spirit continuously works to help us respond in light of what Christ has done on the cross. And that response is revealed in all that we as spirit people do and say in the world that we live in. And that's why Paul challenges them in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 1, where it says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit. Not, I can't address you as pneumatikos, but I, as people who are still worldly, as sukekos, mere infants in Christ. Paul admonishes them that their emphasis on certain spiritual practices as a sign of maturity or wisdom is in fact exactly the opposite. Their divisions over worship practices, over how to relate to one another in conflict, over which leader they will follow, over which teaching they prefer, over what is truly loving in a community, these are all reflections of actually their spiritual immaturity, not of their spiritual maturity and wisdom. And Paul's thinking, what makes you a mature spiritual person isn't the spiritual practices you experience, but it's the kind of life that you live that reflects the character of God. And that only happens when we allow the Spirit of God to lead us back to the cross daily and away from the cross. Spirit brings us to the cross, recognizing how unworthy we are of God's love and grace. And, but we realize how loved we are at the cross. And then the Spirit leads us away from the cross to live in gratitude and joy and in hope in this world in light of Christ's resurrection. At the end of chapter 2, in verse 16, Paul makes an incredible claim in that final sentence. He says that when the people of the Spirit who have recognized the wisdom of God in Christ crucified, we have the mind of Christ. 
We literally have the mind of Christ, the mind of the Messiah. But what does that mean? What are we to make of that? No, it doesn't mean that we literally know everything that God knows. It's not like the movie Matrix, the moment you put your faith in Jesus, that all of a sudden God downloads all that he knows into your brain. That's not how the Holy Spirit works. But it does mean, uh, having the mind of Christ means that for those who have responded to faith in Jesus, the Spirit has given us access to all that God wants us to know. There is nothing that is off limits according to his will. But what does he want us to do with that wisdom? I think two things I can say here. One, the Christian faith is more than just a set of beliefs that we align with. And the Bible is more than a rule book for for how to live a good life, a respectable life. You see, spirit-filled wisdom is a life following Christ that is infinite in its exploration because God is infinite and eternal. It's full. This having the mind of Christ means we can pursue God in that's full of beauty and wonder and and mystery and and power that's just as unending and terrifying as God is himself you see there's always more to know of God we never arrive at i've got it god i, I get enough of it let me just do what i need to do now that i know know you it's not like graduating from school there's always more to know of god but there's also more of no more to know of ourselves in light of who God is because we have the mind of Christ. But beyond personal experience and growth, which we as Americans are really good at because we're really individualized in how we conceive of God and our spirituality. And beyond personal experience and growth, the spirit-filled wisdom also leads us to do things outside of ourselves, to confront worlds of the world of power, whether it's social power or Uh, political power. We see the world with new eyes in light of this new kingdom that we belong to. We see it with the message of God's superior kingdom unveiled in Jesus' death and resurrection. And that meant a lot for this Corinthian church living under Caesar, who was the emperor of all. For Paul, a religious experience with God that doesn't have anything to do with real life of politics and Government and society is an immature faith. This means that in our time, we can allow the Spirit of God to confront sin in our own lives so that we might become more whole and complete. But we also let the Spirit of God to confront, lead us to confront sin and injustice in the world that we live in, to speak out against those things and to work for more just and a society and culture that reflects the goodness of God. That same spirit leads us, that leads us as to repentance as individuals also leads us to speak prophetically to the powers and the systems of, of racism in our world and of oppression that, that marginalize people based on their skin color, based on their immigration status, based on their sexuality, and based on their education and so on, and so on, and so on. That same spirit leads us to, that leads us to repentance also leads us to speak up for the poor and for those who cannot speak for themselves. If we call ourselves mature and wise in God, yet do not do these two things at the same time, then I'm afraid 
Perhaps we aren't as mature as we think we might be. Yesterday, I attended a virtual conference on race and the church hosted by some black pastors and leaders here in D.C. And for the past 30 years, Pastor L.B. Jones has pastored Pilgrim Baptist Church that meets just a few blocks north of us at 7th and I. And he's been there for 30 years and he's witnessed the downs and the ups of the 8th Street neighborhood. And he had this to say about a church of spirit-filled wisdom as, it relates to, as they relate to our city. He, he encouraged us. He said, talk to City Hall. Find out what their 5, 10, 20-year plans are for the neighborhood. You see, they plan and we preach. And they rarely intersect. They have made plans and they've made renderings, but they don't invite Christ followers to the table. There needs to be Christ followers that connect our faith with the wider community involvement. So you go out and find out what's city council talking about, whether it's here in D.C. or whether it's Maryland or Virginia, wherever you're listening from. What's city council talking about? What zoning is changing? What's, what new developments are coming into town? And how will they affect not just us as a faith community, but how will they affect our city and our most vulnerable residents? And maybe for you, spirit-filled wisdom isn't speaking into city planning. Instead, maybe it might be speaking into the schools, because that's another big need. Where do we see inequality there? Who's getting left behind, especially in this pandemic where kids are having to learn virtually? You know, some families I know can afford to pod together because both parents can work from home, and that home doesn't necessarily have... uh, But there are countless families with single parents that work outside the home, and that home doesn't have internet access. What are we going to do and say in these situations with the mind of Christ? We have the mind of Christ. We have the Spirit of God living in us. Praise God. Come on, there's got to be some hallelujahs being shouted there, right? We have the mind of Christ. I can't hear it, but your neighbors can, right? In God's infinite wisdom, God has made it possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Not because we are mature or capable, not because, uh, but it's exactly because we're not. And praise God. Hallelujah. Because we have the mind of Christ, we can all become mature and wise in God. So let's live and speak and act as if that is really the case. To God's glory and by God's grace. Amen.